In your Bibles tonight, we're going to continue to be looking at the Beatitudes of Christ. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 5, and we come to verse number 9. A while back, we started this series on the Beatitudes and basically going verse by verse, hitting each point, and we've likened it as, as if we're climbing up a ladder with each step being what one of the Beatitudes. And we said as much as we're climbing up this ladder, growing in spiritual maturity, we can also look at it as if we're taking a step down the ladder in humble subjection to God. And so here we come to Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 9 in a sermon that I've titled, Peace, Peace, Wonderful Peace. Notice what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Growing up with an older brother who I was forced to share a room with didn't lead to much peace. Anyone had to share a room with a sibling before? A lot of you? Bob, how did that work? Three of us, three of you in one room. A little bit of contention, a little bit of hostility. It was tight. Okay, I think you're putting it mildly. Uh, anyone else want to share? Any, um, Brother Jeremy, how was it sharing a room? I shared it with my own. It was a little bit different for me because my brother was about six years older than me. Okay. There were definitely times when I know we got out of each other. Absolutely. So, similar situation. I was six years younger than my brother. Kiana? I had to. Yeah. That's the way it goes sometimes, right? Well, if you've had to share a room with a sibling, and then you, you know that it generally doesn't work out the best. And even if it's, you know, most of the time things are, are nice and cordial, there can eventually come some times where one of the siblings gets the blood boiling of the other, and things may be thrown, things may be said, and parents may have to come in and inter intervene. Um, it didn't matter, Brother Jeremy, that my brother was also six years older than me, I looked at our age difference as a challenge that I was willing to take on because my brother knew that he, he knew exactly what buttons to push to get under my skin. He knew exactly what to say to get me from zero to 60 in like two seconds. And I was perfectly calm and he'd say just the right thing. And I'd go, if you remember some of those old cartoons, I'd be beat red and fumes, you know, coming out of my ears just like that over one thing he said or even something that he looked at me in a different way. Everything. Everything in that bedroom was a battle between us, and we made sure to pull out all the stops to ensure victory over one another. We had a bunk bed in our room, which my parents, we, we, we didn't always have a bunk bed. We had two separate twin beds in the room separated by a nightstand, and I guess my parents thought that that was too contentious because we would jump on each other from the other bed across, you know, from the body slamming each other and throwing things at each other. So my parents decided it'd be a great idea for us to get a bunk bed, which availed my, afforded my brother all sorts of extra opportunities to get at me because I was on the top bunk. And before you're thinking that I had an advantage being up higher, disadvantage big time. I had a, I had a ladder that I needed to climb up to get to that top bunk. And every night without fail, he made it nearly impossible for me to climb up that ladder. At the end of the ladder, he, as I'm climbing up the ladder, he would tickle my feet. I'm very, very ticklish. And he'd tickle my feet, or he'd just 
push my feet or kick my feet out from the ladder as I'm trying to climb up. Now, you can imagine how horribly this is going to go. I would fall off that ladder. There was a desk. I'd hit my head on the desk. All sorts of issues would come up. And of course, I'm not going to just take that lying down, so I'll lunge at him, and bedtime turned into just chaos. I have, so I had to be smart. I had to invent new ways to get up onto that top bunk uh, to avoid all of my brother's efforts. And while I was planning on a new route to that top bunk, I was also plotting my move of revenge against my brother. Uh, my brother would regularly jump into his bed. He'd get a running head start from the door, and he'd run, and he'd just lunge onto his bed. And so I would use this against him. I would stack all sorts of cassette tapes and matchbox cars into his pillowcase, knowing that as he'd come and jump onto his bed, he'd be met with a very rude awakening. And so I would try and figure out all sorts of different things that I could do, different tactics to incorporate. I also decided that once I could make it onto my top bunk, I would have little action figures, and there was a rail usually to protect me from falling out of the bunk, but I would tie a string to that and a string to the other end of the string to an action figure, and I'd swing it across so that it would come down and hit my brother on the bottom bunk. Well, that worked out quite good for a while until he figured out he can just throw it right back at me, and my big elaborate plan failed. But needless to say, there was not a lot of peace in that room growing up. My brother and I were more instigators than we were peacemakers. We knew we should be peaceful toward each other, but neither of us were willing to be the first one to extend the olive branch, or if we did, the peace was short-lived. There was a ceasefire maybe for an hour or so, and then we'd get right back at it. We seemed to always be looking for reasons to break the peace, and it was just anything that we could think of. Well, he looked at me weird, and so that warranted a reaction on one of our parts. Uh, I know I would get in trouble quite a bit because as we were driving in the car, and if I had a window seat, I refused to allow anyone to look out my window. You were not allowed to. That was my window. And it was a horrible situation for my sister, who was younger than us, and she sat in the middle because my brother wouldn't allow her to look out his window, and I wouldn't allow her to look out my window, and so she's forced to just look ahead straight on. Um, but my dad usually corralled us if we tried to pick on my sister pretty quickly. So, uh, But either way, we were looking at every opportunity to get back at each other. Um, and you know, as I say all this, you're probably thinking, well, my wife just hit the jackpot with me, right? I mean, this is just can't get any better. She really married up. Um, well, some might say that. Whether it's sibling rivalries or just a competitive nature, mankind has never been at peace since sin entered the world. And peace is something that we've definitely sought after. Glimpses of peace have been seen throughout human history, but those seasons of peace have never really endured. At times, great gestures have been made to demonstrate peace or to signify a peace treaty, but even those lose their meaning over time, and, and peace ends up fading. In New York City, the Statue of Liberty stands, which is it, it's a world-famous symbol of freedom. It was given in 1886 by France to the United States in celebration of friendship and peace. Back in 1886, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the nearby Ellis Island was the first stop for millions of immigrants that were coming into the U.S., and the Statue of Liberty served as this beacon of peace for those immigrants that made it to our shores. There's a statue in Israel that's known as the Statue of Shalom, which that is literally the Hebrew word for peace. 
which was placed at the harbor at Haifa to remind people that there is another way. In front of Tokyo Station in Japan, there stands a statue of a man with his arms literally stretched out to heaven with the Greek word agape written underneath, which is the word for love and it's the self-sacrificing love. No matter where you are in the world, there are symbols of peace everywhere you look. Humanity's quest for peace is seen in some fashion or another, whether it's a statue, whether it's some sort of a peace symbol that we see, or even pageant contestants suggesting that their number one goal in everything is world peace. And yet with all the statues, with all the symbols, with all the stickers and paintings and billboards and speeches that are made, there's little peace to be found in this world. The Bible has a lot to say about peace, and what it reveals is that the problem rests not with nations, but with people. I mentioned a few moments ago that mankind has not known true and lasting peace ever since sin entered into the world. And as long as people continue to be against God and refuse to follow his word, no true peace will ever be experienced. Now we can come up with all sorts of peace treaties in the world where we shake hands and we agree that we're going to keep the peace, but just like my brother and I sharing the same bedroom, that peace treaty is going to be broken very quickly. As countries, we've attempted to solve this issue with peace treaties and ambassadors and the United Nations, but all of these efforts fall short of providing a viable solution to bring about a true, lasting peace. Peace may be spoken of on one front, while on the other front, war is raging. And listen to the words of Isaiah chapter 57 and verses 20 and 21. Isaiah 57, 20 and 21. The Bible says, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Now that passage describes the difference between the peaceful righteous and the unbelieving that will be judged by God. Those that are faithful to God, they will end up knowing peace, but the unrighteous who think they know and who think they have peace will end up having absolutely none, the Bible says. And as long as people determine in their hearts that they don't need God, they're never going to know true peace. Peace begins... And peace continues to endure only with God. And apart from God, no peace is ever going to be found. So until a person comes to Christ in faith, he should never expect to find peace in any area of his life. When you break it down, this should make pretty good sense to us. The idea that peace begins and then endures with God. Whether people want to admit it or not, every one of us have been created by God. And by virtue of God being our creator, he is the only one that can bring peace. God is the only one who knows how to bring peace. The good news is that God has given us an answer, though. God has told us that true and lasting peace can be found in the Prince of Peace, his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. So on any level, we can't begin to know, we can't begin to ever experience in our lives peace apart from Jesus Christ. You have no chance of getting out of the war zone of life, of settling the unrest that is in your spirit, of calming that noisy soul within you until you first come to Christ in faith. I don't care how determined you are. I don't care how friendly that you're going to be to everyone that is around you. You will only drive yourself to misery when you seek peace through any other means other than coming to Jesus Christ in faith. No matter all of your efforts, you will, con you will constantly be at war at home, at work, even at church, in your own soul, because true and lasting peace only comes from Jesus Christ. 
Now this, verse number nine, is the seventh beatitude. And as we have said the entire way, one is building upon the other. The previous beatitude spoke of those that were pure in heart. And for those who will be peacemakers, they must first be pure in heart. We read in James chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. The Bible says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So our peaceableness can never be in agreement with sin or can never be aligned with anything that is evil. We must set ourselves against everything that is against God and everything that is contrary to the word of God. And then when it is settled in our minds, only then can we go about living the life of a peacemaker. Now I want you to look back. I want you to look rather here in Matthew chapter five at the next verse, verse number 10, because even though we'll address this later on, these two verses seem to be tied together. I want you to notice what it says in Matthew chapter five and verse number 10. It says, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. No matter how peaceable we are in this world, we are always going to face opposition. The more we live for Christ, the more we are going to be misrepresented, the more we're gonna be misunderstood, which honestly shouldn't surprise us considering that Christ endured the same. In fact, several hundred years before Christ even joined humanity, it was prophesied that he would be misrepresented and misunderstood. Listen to what we're told in Isaiah 53 in verse number three, a very familiar verse. It says, of Christ, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Several hundred years before Christ would be born here on this, on this earth, it was prophesied that he'd be despised and he'd be rejected. The very Son of God, the very Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of all lords is joining humanity in the flesh and it was prophesied hundreds of years before that that he's going to be despised and rejected. If anyone in all of history should have been understood, should have been gladly received, it should have been Christ. And yet not even he has the proper welcome that he deserved. He's the prince of peace. He loved mankind in the greatest way imaginable, far better than what any of us ever deserved to be loved. He loved us. And yet not even he had such a welcome. He was despised, he says, the Bible says, and rejected. Therefore, the peacemaker should not be surprised that when he's diligently working and striving to be more like the Lord every single day, and he will find that he also is despised and rejected of men, that he was also persecuted for righteousness' sake, as it says there in verse number 10. Not exactly something that believers are looking forward to, right? I mean, how many of us would, would offer a sales pitch to a person that we're trying to lead to the Lord and say, listen, it's going to be so great that almost everywhere you go, people are gonna despise you, they're gonna reject you, they're gonna persecute you the more that you stand for Christ. So how about you get on board? That's not exactly the best sales pitch, is it? It's not exactly something that even as believers today, we think, well, that's definitely something that I need more of in my life. 
I need more ridicule. I need more opposition. I need more of an uphill climb. I need more problems in my life because, quite honestly, it's been a little too smooth sailing. None of us would ever say that. But it shouldn't surprise us that this has happened. And I pray that the Lord would give each of us the strength to continue the climb to get to the seventh beatitude, knowing that even as peacemakers, there's still going to be significant opposition that we face. It's no different from what our Lord experienced, so it shouldn't be any different from what we expect to see as well. So let's first take a look at who is the peacemaker. Who is the peacemaker? Look again at verse number nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. The peacemaker, first of all, looks like any other ordinary man because the peacemaker first is a citizen, an ordinary man. As we previously mentioned, the Beatitudes do not describe how a person is saved, but rather how a saved person behaves. The peacemaker is a believer. And when you're saved, you don't move into a community where you're living among only believers. Now, some of us would like to do that where we just kind of, you know, have our own little bubble, where we get away from everyone that's unsaved and just surround ourselves with only people that are saved. But that's not the way it works. When you're saved, you use what God has given you for his glory to benefit those around you. And sometimes he keeps you exactly where you are, which is surrounded by only unsaved people. The peacemaker, therefore, is a citizen who loves peace. This doesn't mean that peacemakers never get upset, that they'll never get annoyed, that they will never get frustrated, that their blood will never boil, but it does mean that the peacemaker has learned through the power of the Holy Spirit how to repress that anger. He has learned the concept of 2 Timothy 2.4, or 2.24 rather, which states, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient. The peacemaker isn't looking for every opportunity to rip someone's head off who looks at him the wrong way. He does his best to keep his temper under control and to remain calm. It's not that the peacemaker never gets upset. It's that the peacemaker has learned how to not lose control of his anger. Sometimes it is necessary to go to war. Sometimes it is necessary to be angry. The Bible tells us that there are times for that. But the peacemaker has learned to be patient and the peacemaker has the discernment to gauge whether something is truly worth fighting for or fighting over. So he is a citizen. The peacemaker is also a human. He's also a human. Some of us can get so upset when someone does or says something that is negative and it's directed towards us. I understand getting offended. I get that. But some of us will take it to the extreme where we feel it is necessary to retaliate for the wrong that was done against us. And by no means am I suggesting that we just sit back and do nothing for someone that is doing harm toward us. But some of us are so quick to seek revenge when it is not necessary. Some of us look at everything as if it's a personal attack. And sometimes a, a passing glance is literally nothing more than a passing glance, but we make it out to be something so much bigger than what it is. Trust me, if you're looking for reasons to be upset, you can easily find them. And a reason you can find them is because every one of us are foolish. And we'll eventually do something that is going to rub you the wrong way. Even if it is not intentional. But even if someone does intentionally give you a dirty look, does that really warrant an all-out attack on that person? 
Has he really disgraced your honor and the honor of your family that much with a dirty look that you need to wage war against that person? Some of the issues we deal with in ministry are so petty that you'd think that we're dealing with a group of kindergartners. Now, it's sad when that happens in church, especially when we're around fellow believers and we allow petty issues to stand between us like a brick wall. Who cares if someone sat in your seat? Now, I know no one would dare do that here. I did challenge you once to just switch it up a little bit, and some of you did take me up on that. I challenge you to do that again. Sit in someone else's seat next service, and let's see how that goes. Dave and Gail, you guys threw me off last Wednesday. I walked in, and they were sitting right there, and I'm thinking, something's wrong. Sit in someone else's seat. Who cares if someone sits in your seat? Is it really that bad? Now, some of us will take absolute offense as if we have assigned seats. And if we looked under the seat, maybe you've carved your name into that seat. But each of us are human. Is it, is it worth being so cold and rude to people who do something like that? Uh, who cares if, if someone signed up to do something that you would normally do? Who cares if someone took your spot in the parking lot? Each of us are human, and I promise you, even if we went around insulting each other, I promise you we're all much more worse than the insult that we can ever say about each other. You don't believe me? Just ask Christ. I'm pretty sure that he came and died in your place because each of our sin was so bad that it not only eternally offended a holy God, but it also eternally condemned each and every one of us to hell. So when someone has something ill to say about you, which I'm sure at some point someone will, don't get so offended to the point where you feel like you need to revenge and get revenge on them because I promise you that whatever they had to say about you is probably not even half as true as what it should be. Now, I'm not giving you a free pass or telling people that they should be saying, allowing the insults to fly, but just remember that we're still human and that our example that we're to follow is Christ who did not curse the hands that beat him, but prayed for those who hatefully abused him. There were times when Christ was angry, but what an incredible example of a peacemaker he was, for the true peacemaker can be angry without losing his temper. And on two occasions, the Bible, two occasions, the Bible tells us that he went in and he cleansed the temple, and he did not hold back. He let the money changers and those who were doing all sorts of uh, selling of things that had no business being in, in, the, uh, in the temple, he let them have it. He drove them out, he made a whip, and he whipped them as they were on their way out. He overthrew their tables, and he made it known that his father's house would not be made a den of thieves. But he did not lose his temper. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 26, the Bible encourages us, it says, Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. The peacemaker seeks to agree with his adversary as quickly as possible. It's going to later on say, you're in Matthew chapter 5, look down just a few verses to verse number 25. Notice what it says here about agreeing quickly. Matthew 5, 25 says, Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, 
and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Allowing anger and strife to continue is always a recipe for disaster. So the peacemaker seeks to end that quarrel, to end that issue as quickly as possible, as in the sight of God. And notice third, the peacemaker is also a neighbor. He's a citizen, he's a human, he's also a neighbor. Now when we think of a neighbor, typically we think of those that live in our general area. We think of those who live in close proximity to where we live. Those are our neighbors. But is a neighbor limited to just those that live close to you? When Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, he said in Luke chapter 10, verse 27, he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and, and with all thy mind. And he says, And thy neighbor as thyself. And the man who was speaking, uh, he was speaking to tried to justify himself and asked the question. He says, well, who is my neighbor? I'm supposed to love the Lord. I'm, I'm doing that, but I'm also supposed to love my neighbor the same way. So who is my neighbor? And thinking that, again, he's, he's going to weasel his way out of this. And this is when Jesus began to tell the story of the Good Samaritan, which you're all very familiar with. And at the end of the story, in verse number 36, Jesus asked the man, he said, now, which now of these three the priest, the Levite were the first two to come by, and then the good Samaritan was the man that actually helped the man that was beaten and fell among thieves. He says, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among thieves? And notice what he says. He says, which one was neighbor? Not which one was a neighbor. Which one was neighbor? Being a neighbor has nothing to do with those that live around you, but everything to do with what kind of person you are to the people who are around you. Being a neighbor is not geographical. It is a state of being. Which one was neighbor, Jesus said. You don't stop being a neighbor once you leave your neighborhood. Everything you do with that mindset, having, having that idea that you are a neighbor at all times, you are going to be the same person all the time. You should be. Being a neighbor is, is a state of being. Just like the Good Samaritan who helped a man who lived nowhere near him. Nowhere near him. And Jesus makes the clear distinction. The man who fell among thieves is a Jew. And the reason the story was so mind-boggling was that it was a Samaritan that helped a Jewish person. And if you know anything about the history of these individuals, they were absolute diehard enemies. The Samaritans were looked upon as, as just dogs because they were only part Jewish while the Jewish people were like nobility. And so they looked down upon them. So Jesus tells a story of a priest that comes by, sees the Jewish person who has been left for dead, continues on without helping him. The Levite comes by, sees the man left for dead, continues on going by. And the Samaritan who normally they have no dealings with, the Jews, sees a man, knows he's Jewish, but sees that there's a need and he helps him. This man was neighbor to the man who had fell among thieves. He lived nowhere near him. But he helped him anyway, even though he was a Samaritan and the man was a Jew. These men didn't know each other. They didn't live in the same neighborhood. They didn't even live in the same zip code. They didn't even live in the same area code. In other words, the peacemaker is a believer who can stay a believer regardless of the context. Are we still desiring to live for Christ 
to demonstrate forgiveness, to show compassion, to exude Christ's mercy, to care for others outside of the regions of our comfort zone. The life of the believer isn't about only being a believer to fellow believers. It is about being a believer to those that you don't know, to those that God has set in your path that maybe you only cross, through, cross by once a day. You absolutely should be dwelling in unity with fellow believers. But you should also have a positive relationship with those that are out in the world as well. This doesn't mean that you compromise in all your standards and all your convictions and you engage in everything the world is doing just so you can be just like them. But we can still be neighbor to people without compromising. We can still keep the peace without forsaking God and his word. We can still minister to people while living faithfully for Christ. So the peacemaker is a neighbor. And notice fourth that the peacemaker is also a believer. He is a believer. Now, this may seem rather obvious to you, considering that we've already established that the Beatitudes describe what the believer should look like. However, it is worth stating this fact that he is a believer. Believers, uh, believer is the peacemaker's greatest title, to be called a believer. Being a believer unites us with Christ. It unites us with his church. Even among churches, there are those who are suffering with infirmities, and these infirmities can cause believers to differ at times. The peacemaker is able to keep unity. He's able to keep, uh, keep the harmony of the church and avoid division in the church. The peacemaker is described in a passage in Philippians chapter 4 and verses 2 and 3. The apostle Paul is writing to this really impressive church that has helped him out quite a bit. And he says there in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, he's writing to encourage them about some issues that they're having in the church. He says, I beseech, I beseech Euodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which have labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and with my other fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. He mentions an unnamed yoke fellow who is a peacemaker, a peacemaker who can help restore the bonds of unity and fellowship within the church. The peacemaker is able to speak calmly with fellow believers. He's able to get them to see the danger of their dispute and how, how catastrophic it can be. He's able to bring healing and restoration to relationships that are in desperate need of mending. The peacemaker embraces the words of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 4, which states, follow peace with all men. Follow peace with all men. The peacemaker prays that the Spirit of God, who the Bible refers to as the Spirit of peace, might rest upon the church at all times, binding believers together every day. The peacemaker strives to do as it says in Romans 12 verse 18, where the Bible says, if it be possible as much as lieth in you, Live peaceably with all men. So that is who the peacemaker is. But notice second, the peacemaker's blessing. The peacemaker's blessing. Look again at verse number nine here in Matthew chapter five. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. The peacemaker first is blessed by God. His conscience bears witness that he has sought to honor God among men through the power of the Holy Spirit. And one thing the peacemaker has come to understand is that God will bless him even though his efforts are not received by others. And what I've come to find is that peacemakers are often blessed by the wicked, even if they're rejected and their efforts aren't wanted. For though the wicked might want to withhold a good word from them, they just can't. 
The peacemaker receives his blessing by overcoming evil with good. Now listen to what it says in Romans 12, 20 and 21. And the Bible says, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. That is almost polar opposite of what our natural inclination is, tells us to do for those that are enemies against us, for those who are opposing us, for those who are standing like a brick wall and, and not allowing us to keep going on. The Bible says, as much as they're hungry, you feed them. As much as they're thirsty, you give them something to drink. You care for them. You show compassion towards those who hate you. The peacemaker is able to do that. The second, the peacemakers are blessed by being a child of God. So they're blessed by God, even though they're opposed by the rest of the world, but they're also blessed by being a child of God. Being a peacemaker is one of the signs of the work of the peace, peaceful spirit of God within you. As a child of God, the peacemaker bears a likeness with his heavenly father. So if you're able to be a peacemaker, it's a sign that the Holy Spirit is working in you the way that he should be. Peacemakers are blessed by being a child of God. And third, peacemakers are called a child of God. Think about that. It says there, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. It's one thing to be a child of God, but it's something more to be called a child of God. The idea here is that even those who might be considered enemies are calling these people children of God. You've made such an impression on people that even if they can't stand you, they can't but help call you a child of God. I found that there is nothing that so strikes the unsaved as the peaceful behavior of a believer who is being mocked and ridiculed and insulted. It just blows the mind of the unsaved how a believer can remain calm and peaceful when everything seems to be falling apart, when everyone seems to be opposed to them, they just can't understand it. They just can't help but notice the huge difference between how the believer and the peacemaker is responding to the situation as opposed to how they'd be handling it. I don't think you realize how blessed a privilege it is to receive the praise of the unsaved when they refer to you as a child of God. So we've seen who the peacemaker is and the peacemaker's blessing. And notice third, the peacemaker in action. The peacemaker in action. Being a peacemaker, it takes a lot of work. Before we can ever be a peacemaker, there is a lot of work that is required of each of us. We must clean up ourselves. We must purge out that old leaven so that nothing stands between us and God. We must forgive those who have wronged us. We must seek forgiveness for those that we have wronged. Let it always be said of us as believers that we are meek and that we are lowly in heart and would sooner bring harm to ourselves than cause someone else to be harmed by us. The key to being a peacemaker is to follow in the footsteps of Christ like we sang earlier. Ephesians 2.14 says of Christ, it says, For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Christ came to make peace between every nationality, between every background that people come from. For we're told also in Colossians 3 and verse 11, Colossians 3.11 says, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Christ came to make peace between us. God and man. 
between his father's wrath and justice and our offending souls. And he has made this peace through the blood of his cross. Therefore, every single believer is an, is an instrument in the Savior's hands to bring peace between God and other sinners. Parents, pray earnestly for the salvation of your children. Pray earnestly for the salvation of your grandchildren. Pray for the salvation of your friends and for your neighbors. And as much as you pray, use every opportunity that God gives you to share his word with those around you. It's almost as if many Christians are content to go to heaven alone. They never want to share about Christ. They never take an opportunity to share about Christ because not that they admit to this, but based on all their actions or rather inactions, it's almost as if they just want to be in heaven alone. Pray that the Lord would use his instruments to bring many to a saving knowledge of him. Have a burden for lost souls. Be a peacemaker who is bringing peace to those who are at enmity with God. And, and finally, the last point, number four, strive to be a peacemaker. Strive to be a peacemaker. We read earlier in Isaiah 57, but I want you to notice what it says in verses 20 to 21. It says, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. This is precisely why we as believers must strive to be a peacemaker. There are far too many people dying in their sins and going to hell. We're locked in a battle where the devil is working twice as hard to make sure that the people of the world are blinded from the truth and that they reject the gospel of salvation. Before, before my grandfather was saved, my grandmother would witness to him over and over and over again. My dad was the first member of his family saved and he led his mom to the Lord and my grandmother would witness to my, to my grandfather all the time, and he was, he was a jokester. He never took anything seriously, and he would joke around, much to her chagrin, even when my grandmother would try and scare him to try and get saved. He said, well, if the rapture comes, I'll just grab a hold of your leg, and I'll go up with you. And he thought that was so funny, and she would be so frustrated with him. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my grandfather wouldn't have to worry about that. For not too long later, the spiritual war that was raging within him was reconciled through the grace of God that finally brought him to eternal peace. Sinners are condemned to hell every day. But let it not be that one person gets there without first being prayed for, without us imploring them to be reconciled, to have peace through God and through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together here tonight. Lord, Lord, we're thankful. We're thankful, Lord, for the reminder that we have in Scripture of, of who you are, and Lord, the wonderful peace that you have come to give. Lord, that was the message that the, that the shepherds first heard as the angels proclaimed the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ, that he came to bring peace and goodwill toward men. And Lord, we... We understand what that peace really looks like only when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that as believers who hopefully every one of us are striving to be peacemakers, Lord, that we are striving to bring peace to all those that are out in the world unsaved. Peace between you and them 
through faith in Jesus Christ and the work that he has accomplished even for them. Use us as your instruments. Lord, use us for your honor and glory. Use us, Lord, to make a difference in the lives and eternity of those that you have placed in our, in our way. In Christ's name we pray, amen.